0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: coming out tonight.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm John Bolvin, President Emeritus of KQED, member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors, and your moderator for the program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series, underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'm now pleased to introduce today's speaker, David Talbot, renowned journalist and founder of Salon Magazine, and author of the new book Between Heaven and Hell The Story of My Stroke. David Talbot has brought us masterful and explosive headline breaking stories for over 25 years with books such as the New York Times bestsellers Brothers and The Devil's Chessboard, and the nationally recognized Season of the Witch. But all of that took a back seat to David's own personal health struggle following a stroke. Today, we're going to hear about his intimate journey through the year that turned his life upside down and ultimately saved him, changing the way he looks at the world. Please welcome David Talbot. Um, I will start with a few remarks
1: before our conversation. Um, Some of you have already begun asking yourselves the existential questions, maybe because of your age or your health, or just because you're prone to reveries about human existence. Questions like When will I die? Is there any meaning to the life that I've lived? What should I do with whatever time remains to me on earth? It took a stroke that I suffered two years ago at the age of 66 to compel me to think in a deep, sustained way about my own mortality and about the much larger questions of life and death in capital letters. The existential questions that do get buried in most Americans' frantic rush to do and spend and enjoy and to avoid boredom and suffering. But death is a shadow that we can't outrun. It's a constant companion we must learn to accept, even welcome, as part of our lives. As the founder of the pioneering online publication Salon, and later as a New York Times best-selling author, I've been known through most of my life as a prober of power and politics in books like Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, and The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and The Rise of America's Secret Government. I've also explored the thrill and danger of political and cultural revolution in my book Season of the Witch. But I've never searched deeply inside myself as a writer until my massive stroke in 2017 forced me to examine my suddenly precarious existence and why I was still on Earth. I began tapping out my internal explorations and my newly acute observations about the world around me while I was still very much in recovery. I felt half dead because a small part of my brain had indeed died the part that controls such rather essential functions as swallowing, speaking, seeing, standing, and walking. I could barely type, with my right hand more a clumsy claw than something human. But I was on fire. I was on fire to capture my punishing experience, which had left me strangely ecstatic. My ordeal, I told loved ones who were gathered around my hospital bed, in the early days, felt like, quote, a cross between a brutal barroom beating and a spiritual awakening. That's the way I felt. I felt this way even though I'm a a profoundly unreligious person. Despite my thoroughly secular identity, I felt transcendent. I'd been stuck in a late midlife trough, bent with obligations and woes, when the lightning bolt cracked open my head, letting in a flood of light. My stroke did not just change my life, as I write in the book, it saved my life. In between heaven and hell, I tell, quote, the story of my stroke, before, during, and after life on the stroke ward. I know that I'll never write this intimately again, I wanted to inspect not just myself, but the worlds of politics, journalism, book publishing, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, in which I'd spent so many intense and stressful years. I'd also wanted to understand the lives and deaths of heroes of mine to see how they made sense of their fleeting existence so that I might make more sense of mine. For one year following my stroke, I wrote this memoir in a fully awakened rush finishing one chapter every week until it became this book. I learned much about myself and my place in my family and my, quote, circle of love, as we call it, and my place in the world. Telling my story also revived in me a strong appreciation of life's random absurdity. I hope others find comfort and insight from its pages, as well as some good dark laughs. In fact, during the most arduous days and weeks of my recovery, I sought solace by turning myself into comic characters. My alter ego, ego, Nigel, for instance, was a very sweet man who was torrentially grateful for the slightest kindness. And for some reason, he spoke in a quaint English accent. Oh, thank you, he would tell the stroke ward nurses when they jabbed yet another needle in my black and blue stomach. You've been ever so kind to me. Uh, Almost done. My memoir, though, is appropriately a short book. Whatever wisdom about the meaning of life and death I have to convey is condensed, and by, by design, entertaining. Between Heaven and Hell is a lighter commitment than reading my history books, certainly, which attempt to explain what went wrong with America in the 20th century. It's not a strenuous work of philosophy. In fact, if my book has any philosophical inspirations, it's certainly not weighty thinkers like Kant or Kierkegaard or Heidegger, whom I still struggle to understand, but people like Montaigne, that homely philosopher of everyday life, and Thomas Merton with his passionate spiritual and yet worldly wisdom, and even the simple but deep songs of of the Beatle, George Harrison, but in telling my life story in a simple but thoughtful way, I try to arrest readers' attention. Like the late Ramdas, a spiritual guide to my generation, who also suffered a stroke at age sixty six and survived for many years, I'm telling people to be here now, stop, reflect, remind yourself that life goes on within you and without you, and maybe your life and make your life and death mean something.
0: Well, thank you, David, for sharing this very personal story. It's a, it's a significant departure from your journalism and your historical investigative books. And I, I've read the book and found it both inspirational and informative. You you've found meaning and motivation from what was really a catastrophic experience. But you also shared personal stories of your life as they relate to your stroke and recovery. And I really enjoyed reading about your years of pioneering internet journalism uh, with the founding and the many struggles of Salon, uh, but also entertained by the stories of your Hollywood family and the gratitude for all the love and support you received during your recovery. Um, I think we should start by telling the audience what happened, but the book covers the first year of your recovery, and now it's over two years. So I guess my first question is, how are you doing after year two? Thank you for asking, John. Yeah, I, you know, I
1: was. my wife was just saying, who's here tonight, that um, I seem to uh, kind of hit another peak in the last three months. I suddenly feel like i more a part of the world of uh, the living. Um, you know, I write in the book how I occupy a strange twilight zone through most of uh, the period after my stroke. Uh, certainly in the first few months, I felt I was more dead than alive, and I felt I, had to, I was uh, sleepwalking through life in a way. And I rather liked it, I have to say, as a writer. You know, it sounds kind of grim, but actually it was very protective for me. I felt like I was in a bell jar. My head was li- literally encased in, in something protective. The world felt too fast. It felt too loud. Uh, and I felt more interior. And that's not a bad place to be as a writer. But lately, I do feel more kind of... Uh, woken up, you know, more woke <laughs> in many ways um, and more engaged with uh, people around me and with events in my life. I'm, I'm out more, uh, a little more. And that's both
0: exciting and a little bit, um, a little bit intimidating. And probably easier reading and the mechanical part of writing has gotten easier. That has,
1: although I have to say my, this hand, my right side is still semi-paralyzed from my head to my, toes. Uh, and so writing uh, on the right side, I can't touch type the way I used to. I still kind of have to hunt and peck. So um, that too has slowed me down. The writing doesn't, can flow as quickly as it used to. I have to be a little more uh, painstaking. Okay.
0: Well, to set the stage, could you just briefly tell us, just so everybody's sort of on the page, same page, what happened on November 17th, 2017?
1: Yeah. Well, this, I, as I say in the book, um This is what a stroke feels like, although unlike uh, like Tolstoy's families, each stroke is unhappy in its own way, uh, or in my case hallucinatory and uh terrifying um, the, I had uh, what was known as a stuttering stroke, which is a stroke that uh, elapses over about forty eight hour period my my life, in my ex- experience i didn 't know i had I was having a stroke at first uh, I was having Friends, uh, having dinner with friends, and I was regaling them with yet one more setback or achievement or something in my uh, experiences in Hollywood. And uh, I got up at one point, and I felt like the lights had dimmed in my head. And that was the beginning of my stroke. And people noticed that I looked different. I just thought I'd had one glass of wine too many. (laughs) And they actually allowed me to drive home. They, They said, are you sure you're okay? And I said, yeah, yeah. And I went home, went to bed, uh, but, you know, woke up the next day and was, felt fine all day long. But the stroke was progressing, even as I felt okay. And I posted something very odd on Facebook. I'm, I was active on Facebook, still kind of am. Um, it was a William Blake uh, image because i I'm was starting to have these kind of otherworldly, as you know, William Blake was the master of otherworldly images, uh, heavenly images. And... I posted something like I know we're going through dark times, but at the end of this dark hallway there'll be there's an a door. It was a quote from a song actually um, and I posted this image, and so people I know later told me that was an odd post you made, and I was in the throes of some ecstatic uh and terrifying experience. Well, by five o'clock the next day, almost a full twenty four hours after the initial experience I had. I was in deep trouble. I, my wife had come home from walking our dog. I, about 5 o'clock that evening, I suddenly said, I can't see straight. I couldn't stand up. I was seeing double. Um, and it was, you know, I was starting to feel some paralysis. It was really manifesting itself. So she rushed me to then called St. Luke's Hospital. I, I wouldn't recommend it. Thank God it's been renovated. It's something else now. It was a terrible experience in the ER there. They, they were about to send me home with what they thought was the flu. Uh, I was 66 with very high blood pressure and all the signs of a stroke, and they diagnosed me as having the flu. And it took 24 hours again for me to get uh, taken by ambulance to the stroke ward at the Davies Campus. Um, of uh of cmpc and that was very important because they have great care there and when i made it uh through the 40-hour period and i was intact enough because they evaluate you how damaged are you can they rehabilitate you or not and sadly those who don't make this darwinian test and are too badly damaged by their stroke have to be essentially warehoused as it's known rather than uh Uh, you know, put in rehabilitation. I was able to spend five weeks in the stroke ward at Davies working with some of the best people. I've stayed close to several of the nurses, the physical therapists there, and they literally uh, rebuilt me as a human being during those five weeks. Uh, But as I say, I decided early on that I wanted to live and that I couldn't be my same old self. Ramdas writes in his book about his stroke, the worst mistake that a stroke uh, survivor can make is trying to restart their life in the same way, go back to their old life. It just won't happen. You have to acknowledge that some of, something uh, has died in you, that you're a new person in many
0: ways, and you have to adapt to your new life. And that's what I did. And, you know, as you say in the book, your body gave you a number of warnings over the years, uh, sometimes at very critical moments like that Hollywood meeting where you were having something going on. Uh, and then also the crazy trip down the stairwell at Salon's offices, which was <laughs> yes. what made you keep charging? He wouldn't he wouldn't get in the ambulance. So they he, he walked down the stairwell with the ambulance drivers. Uh, what made you charge ahead despite these warnings? Just keep Powering through, even though something was telling you something was wrong. Well, in the case of Salon, how many people here re- remember
1: Salon back in the golden days? You know, I, I started Salon, uh, which was one of the first independent. Uh, websites, um, journalistic websites, back in 1995, with a brave crew of colleagues who I basically stole from the old Examiner, which was the Hearst newspaper of the day. And I think Gary Camilla might be here. Gary was uh, one of my uh, my you know collaborators, my accomplices. So we built Salon, and it was near and dear to us. It was the first time as a group of journalists. We weren't young. We were in our 30s and 40s. We were creating something from nothing. No one knew what the web was. The investors didn't know yet. The advertising industry, the the media, the mainstream media. So we were um, kind of inmates running the asylum. Well, you were the you, don't Martin. You were the pioneer of we internet were the, journalism. Exactly, and they were throwing money at us. So we actually had money to hire staff, and I had a big newsroom. And I, like I say, we were kids in a candy store at doing the kind of enterprising, uh, crazy, uh, you know, provocative journalism we'd always wanted to do our whole lives. But working for the man in the past, there'd been so many taboos. Oh, you can't cover this. You can't write that. But now we were doing exactly the journalism we wanted to do. And of course, we got caught up in the Clinton impeachment crisis, and that made our name. We decided to investigate Clinton's uh, the right wing, vast right wing conspiracy, Ken Starr, and uh, the investigative machinery beh- uh, that he was uh, operating. Rather than you know Clinton's uh, you know St- and Monica Lewinsky and their stains dress, the rest of the media was doing that. We wanted to look at the other side, and because we kept breaking one story after the next about. Uh, the GOP and the vast right-wing conspiracy. Our circulation took off. So that was another crazy ride. We were getting bomb threats. I was getting death threats, advertising boycotts. This is back in the late 90s. People think that uh, some of the ugliness in politics began, you know, just in the last few years. It began back in the Clinton era, and we were in the little salon was in the eye of the storm. We had to clear out our whole office one day because of a bomb threat here in San Francisco. So um, that was a lot of pressure. And we were also clinging for dear life uh, to our enterprise financially. There was no business model, as you know, for dot-com journalism then. We were making that up, too, as we went along. Still losing money. Advertising, very difficult. Believe it or not, it was the crisis that made Salon because readers started paying to read Salon something very rarely that people do even today online. They paid us $40 a year, 100,000 people, because we were delivering a kind of journalism no one else was doing. But to get there was very difficult. And one day, I started to experience a massive, what turned out to be, uh, anxiety attack. And my doctor had prescribed a pill to help me sleep. And I took it before a very crucial meeting. Our main investor, God bless him, was John Warnick, the founder of Adobe, a very sweet, intelligent, professorial man. But he was our Lord and Savior. And one bad meeting might convince him that, boy, I've I've invested too much money already. It's time to pull the plug. He was coming by the salon office which was in downtown San Francisco, to see how we were doing. I was not doing so good. (laughs) I was having a massive anxiety attack. I took this pill, and shortly after, I passed out of my desk. (laughs) Awoke, having a racing heart, sweating profusely, and convinced I was having a heart attack. Uh, So, my two loyal friends and fellow editors, Andrew Ross and Gary Camilla, we're very alarmed, they called the ambulance, the, the, the ambulance team came running up the, uh, the elevator, strapped me into the gurney, and Andrew looked out the window and said, oh my God, there's John Warnick. <laughs> he was coming up in the same elevator that I was gonna be taken down in. <laughs> I thought that might kill Salon. <clears throat> Maybe me too, but it would certainly kill Salon. So I said to the two uh, ambulance uh, uh, technicians, you gotta unstrap me, get me out of the gurney. And they, they couldn't believe it. They said, I had to sign a release. So I did. And we sneaked instead down the stairwell so you avoided seeing uh, John Warnick. They then had to explain to poor John, of course, why I wasn't there. But they did a very good job. And Salon continued. Anyway, there were many moments like this during near-death experiences, me and Salon, during that wild dot-com ride. And the, uh, the agony... Uh,
0: continued for me at Holly, in Hollywood right. years later. <laughs> Do you want to hear that story? <laughs> yeah. Yes, and and then also why you t- kept doing this even though you had all these hieroglyphics. Uh, well, that's the
1: question, <laughs> Salon.
0: My wife still asks me to this day why
1: I did it. My wife also was a very good editor at Salon. She knew how important it was. She edited the Mothers Who Think uh, department, which was a very innovative, groundbreaking uh, department about today's mothers, not, you know not her mother's mother's. Um, And so she was part of the editorial crew. She knew uh, how exciting and how dangerous Salon was, but she also knew that I was under enormous pressure and that she wasn't seeing much of me. I mean, she really had to sacrifice a lot herself, not only as a a co-editor, but as uh, my wife. And we were raising two young boys at the time, you know, so it it was stressful for the whole family. You know, I write in the book that I still to this day don't know what, what call I would have made, if I made the right decision or not. I knew I was risking my life for Salon, but how many times does a journalist in their life feel that they're a part of an enterprise that's making a difference? that's literally changing history. Not only were we changing journalism, but this little tiny publication out in San Francisco was having impact on the national dialogue about Clinton's future as a president. I woke up one morning to see Tom DeLay, who is this, you know, viperish GOP hatchet man, uh, on the floor of Congress on on CNN, you know, uh, declaring war on Salon and saying he was gonna put the FBI on us because we are imperiling the impeachment process. You know, so we are under enormous pressure. We we're in the eye of the storm. And that's both terrifying, but also incredibly uh, gratifying to you as a journalist, because you feel that you are making a difference. So would I have done something differently and protected my health then? Probably not. I thought I had to do it because not only was my I supporting my family through Salon, but an extended family. I felt that every person who worked for me at Salon had made uh, a gamble by coming to work for me. People from, you know, big publications took a risk coming to work for me. They gave up other solid jobs. And so I felt I owed them, too. They were part of my extended family. So... I was under a lot of pressure and I, you know, it became a barroom joke literally, how I, you know, could have died that day and was taken down the stairwell instead of down the elevator. But you know, I'm kind of strangely proud of it too, that I lived and salon
0: lived. Right. And then and then later. Uh, you had frustrations with Hollywood more immediately before the stroke. That probably wasn't so worth it. Right. <laughs> and that was to trying to get your books <laughs> yeah. into television or radio i mean television or movies exactly well so as you say
1: i grew up in hollywood hollywood is this weird place I have a love-hate relationship with. My dad was an old movie actor at Warner Brothers, Lyle Talbot, back in the 1930s, the golden age of Hollywood. He acted with uh, Humphrey Bogart, Betty Davis, uh, Spencer Tracy. He he actually co-founded the Screen Actors Guild in the early 1930s. So you know my childhood was was part of the hollywood fabric you know gossip over uh, dinner with between my parents was was based on what was in the, the trades as they called them the hollywood reporter and variety you know it was our lingua franca I, I breathed it in, and my mother would love taking us to old movies, you know, at these uh, theaters in Hollywood where they were playing Wuthering Heights again or something. What was her favorite movie. So um, my sister, Margaret, who's here tonight, wrote a wonderful memoir called The Entertainer about our father, and those kind of glory days of entertainment in Hollywood, and even before Hollywood, my dad would start off in, in traveling theater. Um, so, um, you know, it's in our blood, showbiz. So the idea that, that one of these books, and I wrote my history books, by the way, to be cinematic. I wanted them turned into movies. I think it's one of the greatest stories ever told. The Kennedy brothers, John and Robert Kennedy, that was the most dramatic story as a journalist in my lifetime. That what they were attempting to do and changing the country, and how they both were killed, and why they were killed. That's a deep, dark story that I wanted to shine a light on. Uh, And then, of course, that led me to investigate Alan Dulles and the dark period of the CIA CIA during the Cold War. And I wrote each of those books with uh, movies or TV series in mind. And they were optioned immediately by Hollywood. And I thought, you know, all the big names you can think of were interested. And I thought it was going to happen. But, you know, it's sort of like Lucy and, and Charlie Brown with the football. Again and again, I believed she's going to hold the football. I'm going to kick it. <laughs> and I kept flying down to Hollywood for these meetings. Big, big uh, directors, you know, I was meeting with. Um, and one particular meeting that I write about was the final straw. This one director, who's an A-list director, had assembled a huge team of people in his office. There were like 20 people, writers, you know, producers, uh, handlers, people I didn't even know why they were there. And he wanted me to somehow you know, give them the kind of uh, elevator pitch that would make them see this as a TV show. And he kept coming back to me and wanting more and more. He didn't know exactly what he wanted. It, was, it became clear. He was a confused uh, director who was uh, somehow very excited by my work but didn't understand it. And so I was incredibly frustrated and I literally felt during this meeting after an hour or two, it was an ordeal, that my head was literally going to explode. And I knew my blood pressure was spiking and I knew that day that I should leave Hollywood and never come back. Because as a writer, your work is on the page and that's enough. And if they do make it into a movie or TV show, fine. But you shouldn't have to go through the ordeal of that insanity. Um, that's for a different type of person. And uh, let me tell you, as a writer, a book writer particularly, you have no power in Hollywood. That's the other problem. I was not going in as a director like my son, <laughs> Joe Talbot, who's actually having a much more fairytale experience now in Hollywood. Directors, particularly very talented ones like Joe Talbot, have a lot, of, uh, lot more clout than
0: people like me, lowly book authors do. How how long before the uh, stroke was that meeting?
1: Uh, Frighteningly close to it. That's what I had a feeling, yeah. (laughs) It was, I think, uh, hmm, I'm trying to think now, maybe a month. So that was a real warning. Yeah.
0: Well, since you mentioned Joe, I don't know how many people know, but Joe Talbot, uh, David's son, is the creator of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And that movie was made during your recovery. Yeah, that is strangely intertwined
1: with my um, recovery. Joe would come to me and visit me in the hospital and talk to me late at night, and he was... um, You know, a first-time director and suddenly faced with, you know, about to go on the set for the first time, shooting a feature film for the first time, you know, Brad Pitt's company, Plan B behind it, suddenly something he'd been struggling on for five years in our home that had been like kind of a, you know, a, a small project that was suddenly blossoming into something very big. So I felt the pressure on him and I was worried because I knew what it had been like for me in Hollywood. And then suddenly my son is doing it. And here I am lying in bed in, a, in the hospital with a stroke. Um, but Joe, I think, was very uh, different than I was. I mean, he had his own, obviously, pressures and worries and concerns. But as I say, he had more power as a director. He was in charge of the process. I think that gave him much more confidence. And there's something in, in Joe that's just very centered in the middle of the storm. His mom and I went on the set a few months later when I was out of the hospital to watch him direct one of the most crucial scenes in the movie. It's the play within a play, if you're familiar with the movie. And it's a very dramatic scene because the big reveal is in this scene. And uh, Jonathan Majors, who's a b- brilliant actor, was, uh, was doing the scene and There was, you know, lighting people, grips, camera, you know, police outside blocking traffic. Uh, It was it seemed to me like a madhouse. But there was my son, Joe. I write about this in the book. He was calm in the eye of the storm, quietly giving directions to the cinematographer, you know, consulting with the actors before the camera rolled. And I was just so proud of him because I tend to run hotter. <laughs> I'm a little more like scattered, a little more, you know, kind of aggravated when I'm running things. I think I operated salon, you know, fairly well as a boss. But, I, you know, to see Joe just being so calm that way and um, composed was very reassuring to me after what I've been through.
0: Since the stroke in in many ways you're the same man and in many ways you're very different and you say in fact better. What have been the benefits? What do you think have been the most beneficial aspects of the experience?
1: Patience. Being a patient makes you patient. When I was in the hospital even, I wanted to partly because I'm a journalist, I'm curious about people, and partly you're lonely. You're there like, you know, late at night you're up in hospitals run 24 hours a day and different shifts come in and the people are on the graveyard shift. Literally um, tend to out to be the best people sometimes. And sometimes they're the best people. Um, and so you're up at three o'clock in the morning. People are moaning in the room next to you. The, uh, the hospital feels alive in a kind of creepy way. Um, so you have to decide that you're going to bond with this new family, these nurses, These uh, technicians, these people coming in to take your blood at all hours to wake you up to make sure you're still alive. You know, so they become this sort of odd family and um, they make you more patient. They made me a more gentle person, I think. Uh, Not as uh, self-centered. I had to be sort of more interested in them and the world around me. And partly it came to me naturally as I'm a journalist. I like to hear people's stories. But partly I'm just sort of feeling alive. When you feel alive that, and when you should be dead, everyone's so interesting to you. Even the people come coming, like I'm not religious, but they're, you know, like, Twenty-year-old in psychology interns who were, you know, went to, you know, do therapy with me, but I was doing therapy with them, and were like religious counselors. <laughs> my sister remembers this that I was spiritually advising them. You know, kind of. We were having it. I like talking to human beings, and it was an affirmation of my own existence. So I think patience is the number one thing. Not being so, um, so tense, so stressed, so deadline oriented. Um, you know, I wrote this book th- the only way I could have. I wrote it as a, as a bottle to throw out to other people a message in a bottle, and the response right away online was so overwhelming. People told me their own stories, all the trauma they had been through, or a loved one who just died, not just strokes, heart attacks, cancer every calamity that befalls all of us in the end. Someone said, you know, we're only temporarily abled. At some point, all of us will be disabled and all of us die. And so being uh, aware that I'm part of that community, that was a community I'd never felt before. I always felt part of a media community, family, people who were living and breathing and throbbing with life and energy. Suddenly I was a part of a group that was either caretakers who learned the patience of how to take care of other people, or people who are suffering and about to die. And I loved, in a weird way, seemed to be part of that new world because it made me feel oddly alive in a different way. So um, I guess I like this new phase of my life. I see it as a last chapter in many ways. And that's why I read people like Ram Dass or I listened to George Harrison's music. I think George Harrison said at one point, I've been preparing for death my whole life. He was the deep beetle. And I was, you know, one of those in my generation. We were shaped by the beetles. And by interviews, we'd read with John, the smart beetle. And by George, the deep beetle. And so that's why I say, you know, I wanted guidance. Who, who else has been through this? Who else is in touch with the world of the living and the dead and can give me some guidance? And so as I became sort of more woke about this myself, I felt as a writer I needed to communicate this with people too, to start a dialogue. And I hope my book does this. I I really enjoy these uh, conversations like we're having tonight, John, and, and meeting people. Uh, the book is short, it's easy to read, and like I said. So I want to hear from other people um, because I am strangely, despite this encasement
0: that I feel now, still a social animal. One of the most intriguing parts of the book for me were your descriptions of feeling elation or joy or calmness more deeply or in a different way than ever before. And not just psychologically, but physically. I mean, the the moment the stroke began, but also several other points during the year, you seem to have this physical thing going on in your head that wasn't so bad. It was kind of... Nice. And that seemed like an odd result of a stroke. Yeah, I I became, like
1: I said, I became more patient, more gentle. I became very connected to my dog, Brando, because I suddenly really identified with him. You know, I realized he has to like tell people I have to go to the bathroom now. You know, I, I want to go for a car ride. You know, I couldn't drive anymore. I never w- will be able to drive because of my vision and, and other impairments. So I, and he was home a lot and I got left home a lot. I wasn't <laughs> out as much as anymore. And, uh, Sort of in the beginning, I had to feel, tell people, hey, I'm hungry now. Can you help me out here? So um, I loved, and Brando was kind of a deep soul. When, he, when I came home, I, was, uh, I slept in my son's bed on the first floor because I couldn't climb stairs to my, our bedroom with, with my wife. And uh, Brando had not seen me really for five weeks. And he jumped up on my bed He's a very empathic creature. And he put both his paws on my shoulders like he was my friend. It was an odd thing. He'd never done that before. And he stared right into my eyes with these big brown eyes he has. And it was like, are you really home, man? I cannot believe you're here. And then it was like, okay, you're here. He slept on the... uh, Uh, the bottom of my bed, on my bed, at the edge of my bed for the next five or six weeks to make sure I wasn't going anywhere. And then I had to relearn to walk. So I'd be walking up and down, up and down with my uh, walker and cane for for hours every day. And he would would walk with me every step of the way to make sure I was okay, I wasn't going to fall. So he's an amazing creature. He was an amazing creature. He died, and this is not in the book because it came after it was published. He died the day after Christmas, And, you know, so that was an amazing loss. And I've never had an animal I was that close to before. And it's a strange thing because, you know, kind of embarrassed. Well, he was an animal, he was a human being. But it did tear a hole in my heart and in the heart of my wife, Camille. We were both very close. And our whole family. Margaret, my sister, is here also close to him. So, you know, somehow I think that loss would have been more devastating to me before now loss seems like part of my life cycle, in a way. And saying goodbye to him, you know, he died in the vet. He had a terrible infection. We couldn't save him. He was uh, We got him to a vet, an emergency at night. And he, he had sepsis, so he was dying of a serious blood infection. And I got down on my knees. He was only 10. He should have lived longer. He, was, he had been very healthy up until then. And as he died, they gave him a shot to put him to sleep. I wanted to look into his eyes the way he'd looked into my eyes
0: and, t- and say goodbye to him.
1: Yeah. I've
0: got some questions from the audience. Uh, what is the most reasonable thing to say to a recent stroke per- victim uh, that is supportive and is not insensitive or awkward? What, and what should you not say? <laughs>
1: Well, that, that's a good question. You know, a lot of people—they're very well-meaning. They—I uh, <laughs> say this in the book. The one guy came up to me on the set of my son's film and said, "Oh my God, David, it just hurts me so much to see you this way." <laughs> you, that is not a good thing to say. <laughs> Because I I know that this person, as I say, was well meaning. And it it was shocking to see me like visually impaired on a cane. You know, I look better in some ways. I lost a lot of weight, I have to say. Um, But, you know, I was clearly not the same old me. So um, I want people to acknowledge that I'm different without um, kind of feeling sorry for me. And then be prepared to sort of say, hey, but you're still, um, you've still got this new vitality or something. I want them to be able to be with me in both the land of, uh, the, of shadows that I inhabit. And then be prepared when I come out of them. It is, it, to tell you the truth, it's asking a lot of people. And I give people a lot of slack. You know, Everyone's everyone. I mean, I'm probably the same way with someone who has some infirmity. You you do the best you can. Um, The the main thing is not to be like, uh, take pity. You shouldn't take pity on people.
0: I think, you know, we're still all alive, you know. Here's one. How How did you accept that you would never be the same after the stroke? And what parts you could continue to grow and thrive with? What parts of your life would continue? Well, my mother had a stroke. Uh, and my aunt had a stroke
1: when I was young and they both came back different people they were intellectually impaired they came back as children they came back as somebody else and that is uh, very very disorienting for those who are left behind those who love them I really didn't want to come back that way Uh, (laughs) my son was saying this the other day I said to him in the hospital I just don't want to come back as a Trump supporter you know he, he was prepared for anything else and we had a little joke. I said, you know, hey, I don't want to come back as a vegetable, unless it's eggplant, because I like eggplant. But, um, but you know, you, you don't want to come back so that you're so much of a burden on your family that, uh, you know, that it's uh, very difficult, I think, emotionally then for everyone. Uh, My wife, Camille, was, uh, you know, a saint. She worked with me uh, and the hospital staff at first while her own mother was dying uh, up near Sacramento. A lot was on her shoulders. And then um, when I came home the first year, I still needed a lot of attention and care. I couldn't drive anymore. So, but at least I was knowing that I was coming back. I, I loved to cook, so I was starting to cook a lot. I knew I could take on, uh, you know, more and more obligations that helped her. Um, that's. I think my main fear was to be a burden, and that you hear that often, you know. And I think I'm a still fun enough guy to be around the house. That uh, you know, she still likes me. I think, <laughs>
0: by and large. <laughs> uh. I think this is a season of The Witch Fan. Do you think you'll write more on San Francisco? Well, I do in the book. I write a whole
1: chapter about the city called Sanctuary City. And I write about how difficult it was for me to come home from the hospital and be seeing double. The city seemed cranes everywhere, Uber cars on the streets. You know, it seemed too hectic for me. It wasn't the sanctuary city I wanted to to be. Um, and really, you know, I'd come... More and more alive politically in the last few years. You know, I didn't know that much truthfully about the city's politics and history till I wrote Season the Witch. I was more focused on national politics as a writer. But that book began to immerse me in the city where I've lived for many years. And, um, you know, I became more engaged in local politics. And I felt that the city had to be fought for. We were losing the city to the forces of greed and and you know big money. And more and more people we know being displaced, uh, not being able to afford in a city where they'd lived for years, raised their kids. So I felt we were fighting for its survival, for the survival of San Francisco values that I had celebrated in Season of Witch. And um, so it was important to me to get involved again. And the first challenge I had, as a journalist and public you know citizen, when I came back from the hospital, Jane Kim was running for mayor, as you remember, and she was someone I supported and running against london Breed, who ultimately won and She asked me, Jane, if I would speak at the rally to kick off her campaign, and I was terrified to get up on stage that day i I could speak i I, I spoke not as well as I am now. I was afraid I wouldn't be intelligible. Uh, I was afraid I would tip over. I didn't have balance. And I walked, but I accepted because I felt I owed it to Jane and I owed it to my city. So I said yes. So I came up on stage. It was a big hall south of Market, big nightclub, this afternoon, people, the young crowd, you know, very boisterous. They were hitting the bar already. I thought, oh, my God, here's this old guy in a cane (laughs) who's going to try and hold this audience, you know, and, and whip them up. I just felt totally out of place. But, you know, uh, by God, they were very patient with me. They listened quietly to my speech, which I had to read. um, And it seemed to have an impact on them. Just the fact I was there and still trying to uh, have a voice in San Francisco politics was, I think, in, in some way inspiring to them. I hope it was. so that was a big hurdle for me and i i have to say that with the recent election of dean preston who is another friend uh, to the board of supervisors and chase Boudin as district district attorney i just feel san francisco uh, as a progressive city, has life again. And um, it gives me great, you know, kind of um, confidence that the city I've chosen to live in, and my kids are still living in, my wife, our family, and my sister Margaret, now thinking moving here, is the right place to be. It's worth fighting for. Great.
0: So now that you, have, you know you have a future, you've made it through this, um, what are you thinking? You know, what what what's in store? Sort of, what's what's plan? What do you have planning in your mind for the years ahead? Um, well, you know, I like being a little bit of a
1: bystander. I have to say, I think I've written the books I really need to write. Although I am working on a book, a, a great book, with my sister Margaret. I had a contract to write a book, a, a history book that it was pretty ambitious, when the stroke um, kind of felled me. And I just felt I could have at that point said, look to my publisher in New York, I just can't do this, I'm sorry. But, you know, the, the topic still spoke to me. Um, it's about revolutionary heroes from the 60s and 70s. And these are heroic people uh, who I feel are... We need right now. We need their inspiration. And we need to learn from their mistakes. Um, And we need it more than ever. The country is so dark and so lost right now. We need that light. And so I went to Margaret, and she's a wonderful writer, Margaret Talbot. She's here tonight from the New Yorker. My wife, Camille, who's another great writer, Camille Perry, was engaged in her own book, uh, a, a beautiful literary biography of Robert Louis Stevenson and his kick-ass pioneer American wife Fanny and so that's going to be a great book so she was otherwise engaged I couldn't ask her so I asked Margaret who's uh, my other favorite writer would she help me with this could we co-write it and uh, to my great uh, you know, delight she said yes. Yeah. So, Mark Talbot and I are a team now. We're writing this book together, which uh, should be out in a couple of years. <laughs> so, I think that's going to be the last book I write. Um, I'm, I love being a bystander at my age. I like watching my son in his film career, Joe Talbot. You know, he has some other great projects he's already working on. I want to see Camille finish her wonderful book about uh, Robert Louis Stevenson and Fanny. Um, and you know, here, you know what? Call me crazy, John. I still want to see my books made into Hollywood things. Oh, I was gonna, <laughs> I was gonna ask if you're still gonna pursue that. Yeah, uh, you know, um, I, I'm not an easy learner, I guess. It, you know, so I, I still, I'm hoping for the best there.
0: And and are you still in contact? I mean, are you? Are you do you need to restart actively? My after uh, that? no, two of my books are still owned by a big
1: company in Hollywood, and as we speak, they're still <laughs> trying to develop them into a TV series. Oh, we'll, yeah.
0: we'll look forward to that. Um, let me just oh, there was one other question here from the audience: How have your personal and professional goals changed since the stroke? Well, it sounds like you still have the goal of getting your books made into Hollywood. Movies or TV shows, but right. But again, I'm just not in the rat race as
1: much, and I don't want to be. The one thing I still feel like compelled to do is I, I blog. I write about uh, you know things that are important to me politically uh, on Facebook, and I I actually enjoyed writing a daily column or uh, three times a week for the uh, the local newspaper, the Chronicle, and I did that for about six months, and I liked the feeling of being part of my city's uh, metropolitan life and going out and interviewing people. And and uh, uh, I guess I'm like, you know, Dante loved his city-state, Florence. And I guess San Francisco, because the rest of the country to me just seems so bizarre, that I, I, f- I have a feeling for my city-state, the city of San Francisco. So I it, I take personally the the future of the city, and I want to have a, a, a voice in its future. So I would like to keep writing... Not on Facebook, because I hate Facebook, and I want to I get off Facebook, and I'm plotting my exit, uh, and I don't have a, a, you know, a platform yet, but I'm talking to people about doing that. Yeah. But I want to use that platform to still uh, comment on, mostly on the, the future of my city, but some on the country. We all have to be deeply involved in 2020 in the presidential race. You know, I think, you know, you've heard this before other years, but I think the sole of the country is more at stake this year than probably any other year you know since I can remember since 1968 certainly when I was uh, as a teenager volunteered for Bobby Kennedy's campaign in California and can rem- remember the dreadful night he was killed and I had the same sense then that we were, had lost the country that night and that was the final straw after Martin Luther King was assassinated and then Bobby was assassinated the same year and I feel that like the country is now you know, uh, in the, we're going through the same crucible. We have to decide as a country, uh, are we going to keep going in the same dark direction? Are we going to pull it back from the brink? So I think we all have to be very involved this year, and, and uh, I, I plan to be as well.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, 1968 was my first year at a, at a newspaper as a journalist, and it feels a lot like 1968 uh, around now. Um, I could actually see a, uh, I see a blog or a column called The Bystander uh, With your voice out Well, there.
1: the Chronicle called me in the recent Profile they did of me, because when The book came out, The Reluctant Memoirist I like that too <laughs> Yeah, you you slipped quite a bit of memoir Into yes. the into It took a book. stroke to make me become one
0: <laughs> T- Talk a little bit about The, the whole concept of And the the way in which you experienced the circle of love. Sort of what you mean yeah. by that and, and who were the the members and, and and how that affected your recovery. Well, that's essential. <clears throat> One of the saddest, I think, experiences of the hospital,
1: yeah. I, I write about this, was there was a man who was brought in, wasting away, and he was losing so much weight, a neighbor became alarmed. He lived alone and brought him to the hospital. And he had gained enough weight at the hospital that where they were about to release him. And I was in the second or third day of my stroke. I could barely, you know, uh, function. But I heard the the exit nurse who was interviewing before they released him, you know, talking about his life. And he seemed so lonely. There was no one there to pick him up, no one there to take him home. He was all along the world. He He'd been a tech guy. He'd worked in the tech industry, was successful, had bought his own condo, but lived entirely by himself. I've never heard such a lonely story in my life. I had a totally different uh, experience. There are people around my bedside, my brother Steve, who you know, uh, Steve Talbot, who's worked in public TV his whole life, who was there reading me with his uh, wife, Pippa, and Camille, my wife, uh, reading to me from Wind in the Willows, because for some reason, I needed to be taken back to these meadows with these funny animals, funny creatures in England. It made me feel... uh, kind of um, safe, you know, and they read to me from Wind in the Willows, they've always called me a toad-like character, because I tend to be very impulsive, (laughs) and so, um, you know, my circle of love began in the hospital, with my loved ones and my family, my sons would spend the night in a cot next to me, play music, and talk to me while I fell asleep, it's terrifying the first few nights, particularly in a hospital. And so unless you have those people, and they make mistakes. Hospitals are like workplaces. They screw up. They screw up your meds. They do things they sh- they, they didn't catheterize me, you know, when they should have, cath- you know. So some basic mistakes that, that, you know, you want loved ones around to also, you know, hey, shouldn't you be doing this or that? Uh, Talking to the hospital staff. But then, of course, it, it extends after that. I found out, uh, you know, by going on, you know, online, we need to raise money. We were broke. I'm a freelance writer. My wife's a freelance writer. She couldn't work anymore. We needed some basic bills paid just to get us uh, through this transition before my disability kicked in. And so my son, Joe, said, let's go and do a GoFundMe. Margaret helped. And suddenly people I hadn't thought about in, you know, years were writing to me. Sending money, they 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 actually contribute enough money for my family and I to be secure for those first few months, which was essential for us. So you begin to see that the circle of love extends beyond your immediate family. It's your neighbors who bring over food when we couldn't cook in the beginning. It cookies. It was Christmas time. We have lots of lots of uh, Christmas cookies. Um, it's their way of sh- showing love. And care. When I had my book party here there night, I couldn't believe it. it was, I, I wrote later, it was like being at your own funeral and hearing all these wonderful things about you, but you're alive. Um, <laughs> my whole life was passing before me. So um, that gives you such uh, will to go on. My wife said to me something the first. Hours I was I thought I was dying and the people are gathered around like my bed in the Wizard of Oz you know with Dorothy at the end and she's seeing the the farm hands and and I thought there they all were these faces I love, my brother my sons my wife my uh, you know uh, sister in law and I was saying goodbye to each one of them I was paralyzed I was this paralysis was in. It was sweeping over my body. It felt like I was going to somewhere else. I felt I was I was dying. Um, and so I was saying goodbye to them. I said, don't cry. Don't, I've had a nice life. You know, I was trying to give them <laughs> encouragement. Um, I remember this. Mar, uh, Camille just said to me, just grabbed my hand and said to me, you're not going to die. And I remember that. You're not going to die. So that's Was resonates with you. When someone says to you, you're still needed here, that was a very important thing. When the ambulance driver who's driving me to Davies, the stroke ward, I knew that I had to get the stroke ward. I was going to die. I needed their expert care. They told him, sorry, we're full up. They suddenly told the ambulance driver, I was almost there. We were minutes away. And that guy I've always wanted to find who that guy was. He was such a hero. He said, what do you mean? I'm bringing this guy in. He needs to be there. I'm bringing him in whether you want him or not. So just because that guy was stubborn and, and tough, I was taken by the stroke ward that day. So you see the circle of love and manifest itself in many ways through kindnesses of a stranger who'd never met Camille who sent her the most lovely card with flowers saying they knew what she was going through. A stranger. people sitting money, as I say, and cards. People writing letters to me. Every one of those people who reached out to me meant something to me and kept me going.
0: So really, without that, you wouldn't be here. Truly. On a lighter note, um, I want to ask you to tell us about strokey and uh, and 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 I can't remember in the book where it began but but shortly after you could stand up, it sounded like you started dancing and what what possessed you to
1: to start dancing. Well, you know, I, I loved to dance back in the 80s. I was on the dance club circuit. My wife and I, and, and before I met Camille, I loved the I Beam, the Stud, uh, some of the great, you know, dance venues, clubs that people are going to. Sometimes hear live music and sometimes great DJs. And it was a great mix in those days gays, straights, men, women. Um, it was San Francisco at its best when there was a big nightlife. And yet AIDS was starting to creep in in those years. And there was kind of a shadow of death even then, I remember. And I remember uh, gay friends dancing with them and and, and feeling, you know what, we're dancing despite this. Despite, you know, this person may be sick next week. But we were dancing for our lives. And we danced against death. And that's the way I felt when I came home, uh, you know, so impaired. Um, I still felt... Weirdly, I felt the drum beat when I because what the stroke had done to my head. I could feel the drum Paging Oliver Sacks, right? I, I could you could still feel I felt the drum in a more Kind of defined way than I've ever heard drum beats before I knew when the drum was offbeat I knew it was too loud. It was the strangest experience, but it actually one make me move you know while I was still in the hospital bed so when I came home, dancing was part of my physical therapy. It was a way of being alive. And I remember the day that I really felt it. Again, not to keep shouting out Camille, my wife, and Margaret, my sister. But they were with me. At a, uh, I was trying on T-shirts. And suddenly, my body felt very dancey. Because I had lost all this weight. I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm like, you know, 35 again. And... <laughs> And so it was, uh, it was in the Castro, a cool men's store, and I was trying on some cool shirts, t-shirts, and, and jeans, and they fit really nice. I thought, wow, I have a new body. Yeah. I, I don't recommend strokes as a diet plan, but you know, it actually was very effective for me, I to say. Anyway, so they were playing a lot of 80s music, kind of my era, dance era. You know, uh, Culture Club and Flock of Seagulls, Soft Cell, Bronski Beat. And I said, hey, you know, I'm strokey. Was, I, 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 I developed a new alter ego. I was strokey and I had to dance. <laughs> so we were at, they were a little, uh, a little, I have to say, a little shocked at first. Bargain. <laughs> Margaret and Cindy a little concerned that maybe the stroke had had some lasting impact on my My personality, but you know they start dancing, too And we all enjoyed it and you know I have to say dancing in the small confines of a dressing room You're kind of safe because you can't tip over too much you, against
0: these walls
1: <laughs> And have you
0: continued? Uh, yes,
1: dare- I do dance. I I, I'm a little embarrassed, I have to say, but, you know, Brando used to dance with me. I miss Brando. He was a good dance partner. Um, but uh, I, I tend to do it when I'm not... No one else is in the home.
0: So we're, we're getting to the end of our time, and I kind of want to give you the, the final word. What final thought do you think you'd like to leave us with, other than buy the book? <laughs> final thoughts. Well...
1: Let's hope it's not a final thought. Cause I, <laughs> for this evening. Yeah. I um, The final thought for the evening is that, uh, you know, I all think we need a sense of hope and resilience right now that just when things look darkest is when uh, there's some light. And so the darkest, uh, you know, hours before the dawn. And, uh, you know, having a stroke makes you feel you, you can actually put up with a lot and that you can uh that you can succeed in the end somehow just by living so the fact that i lived makes me feel that uh we're here for some reason my reason is to continue to expand my circle of love to take care of the people that need being taken care of and right now the whole country needs that and we need to uh we need to actually go through our own kind of resurrection as a country so I want to be part of that as well and you know for 2020 I hope there's a a very new country by the end of the year
0: Our thanks to David Talbot, renowned journalist and founder of Salon Magazine and the author of the new book Between Heaven and Hell, The Story of My Stroke. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Good Lit series underwritten by the Bernard Osher Foundation. We also want to remind everyone here that David's books are for sale and he will be pleased to sign copies in the back of the room following the program. I'm John Boland and now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned.